Right, Carl Jenkins, you're the audio engineer here. You've got the tape racked up on that machine with the green leader. What happens now? We're recording it into a digital audio workstation uh, into a WAV file format, a uh, high sample rate. You will just play the whole tape from start to finish, trim a second of silence either side, and that will be the archival copy, uncompressed. The archival copy that we make will be stored in our permanent digital repository, and we also generate a, a listening copy for the reading rooms, a digital listening copy, so that people who want to visit the library and listen to the tape in its entirety can. British Library is all about preserving the artefact in the best way. They're not cleaning up the tape. It isn't about audio manipulation to alter what you can hear, as you might for commercial release. Welcome to this week's When They Was Fab. Once again, the Gab Four, as Martin has dubbed us, are back together, and we're going to finish our look at the April 4th, 1963 Stowe School tape. All right. I'm Gabby Stone. <laughs> I'm Gabby Crevel. I'm Corey Stoke. <laughs> No, no, no. We don't. We, we don't do that. Although, maybe we do. I don't know. We need some boys shouting at us. With some, maybe a couple girls in the back, just to keep us honest. Let's see if I can do it. Ah! Ah! <laughs> so last week, we talked a little bit about Ringo, and we talked a lot about the Stowe School tape. 
which was discovered. Uh, well, yeah, I would say it was discovered this year. It found its way onto the BBC and it found its way into the British Library, and now it's found its way into our hands. You know, this kind of reminds me of the old days of bootlegs, when you'd hear about the existence of something, and you'd just sit there and hope and pray that this would come into your hands, and then you'd finally get it. Yeah, and this was a very pleasant surprise, folks. You could see this being something that in the 70s, John Lennon, if he knew it existed, he would really have jumped at a chance to get hold of this. He would like this one. He loved the BBC tapes, which he mistaked for the DECA audition. That's right. Yellow Matter Custard, and he sent the tape to Paul saying, hey, we were a pretty good band, weren't we? You know, I haven't heard anything from Sean Lennon or Julian, for that matter, about what they think of it. Although, why should either of them really have much of an opinion, or, or at least much of an opinion beyond what ours might be? I'm sure they've listened to it several times. You think so? I think so. Secretly, of course. <laughs> well, um, they put on fake mustaches and funny noses and <laughs> there you found go. their way to the British Library. I'm sure they both have library cards from the British Library. <laughs> they could be the source of the release or the leak. <laughs> Who knows? Again, as we mentioned in the first half, there is something to indicate to us, both from sound quality and from the presence of external noise and air conditioner or something, that... This is not a straight digital copy, although it's pretty good. That's correct. All right, so back into the show. Now, as you may know from listening to Front Row a couple of months ago, in April 1963, the Beatles played a concert like no other to an almost entirely male audience at Stowe Boarding School. One of the boys, John Bloomfield, quietly recorded it and kept the tape for 60 years till he decided to reveal it. the sound of the earliest almost full concert recording of the Beatles in the UK. In that programme, we also heard how the band were taken for dinner afterwards in the tuck shop and joked with the girls present. Well, the tuck shop master's daughters, Jan Winterson and Maggie Boynton, got in touch with me the morning after that front row programme and, as well as their story of being two of the very few girls at the gig, it turned out they had their own tape of conversation with the Beatles made the same night. So we have two revelations, Jan and Maggie's story and what John decided to do with his concert tape. He didn't want it to disappear into a collector's vault, so I put him in touch with the sound archive at the British Library, which is about to celebrate its 50th birthday. Okay, so then we move on to Some Other Guy, which Paul tells us was recently recorded by some friends of theirs, a Liverpool group called The Big Three. And as (laughs) Martin knows, this was actually on the charts right around this time. It was. Yeah. Big hit. The top 40 at the time? Yeah, it hit the oh. British top 40. Okay. The big three did a cover? They did their own version of some other okay. guy. Okay.
introduction is Paul saying, well, you know, we're going to do a song from these friends of ours, the big three who were from Liverpool and in the Brian Epstein stable. Although, again, John has to just come out. Boo! <laughs> Sarcastic John. We move into a really nice version of some other guy. Pretty close to what we get on the, the Granada Cavern, although it's got a little bit more rock in it, I think. Yeah, Rigo kind of goes wild on the drums, kind of like he does on Long Tall Sally at, at, in Washington, D.C., where he's doing this, as, as the guitar's going, he's doing this syncopated thing. That, that was different. I haven't heard that on any other version of it. Yeah, they were clearly having fun at the show. Earlier, someone said that this location where they were playing, it's about two hours from London. Hour and a half, two hours. So they basically probably drove there, obviously, and then drove back the same night. So you cannot tell, really, that they were probably tired from drive to and from. Well, that's what Mal was for, right? Yeah. They did a BBC show in the morning from 11 to about 1 o'clock. Then they drove out. Then they were at the Stowe School. And as it turns out, they were actually invited to one of the headmaster's homes for a home-cooked meal. That kind of happened after the show. And one of the other interesting, peculiar things about that is the headmaster said, Oh, well, we're going to have the Beatles in the house. I want to tape our dinner conversation. And he did. (laughs) So there's a tape, not only of this show, there's a separate tape of their dinner conversation. Is that? (laughs) First of all, we've had the great surprise of the Stowe School concert recording, the the one that John Bloomfield made. Um, Who knew that, only John knew that that had been made and he kept it for 60 years until now we know. Now it turns out there was a second recording at the school the same day. I'm not sure that the Beatles knew their concert was being recorded. And I don't think they knew their dinner was being recorded. They didn't, did they? No, I wouldn't have thought so. (laughs) They weren't yet that big, and yet two surreptitious recordings were made of them at a time when making a recording was a difficult thing to do. Are they going to get Peter Jackson to take away all the knife and fork sounds on there then so we can hear it? (laughs) I'm also thinking, what is going on at Stowe School? It's like a bunch of intelligence agents. We're taping this, and we're going to tape the dinner conversation. and You know. (laughs) You wait 60 years for an unheard Beatles recording and then another one comes along, made on the same day and in the same place. After she heard John Bloomfield and the Beatles at Stowe's story on Front Row, Jan Winterson contacted me. She and her sister Maggie had been at the concert too. They came to Broadcasting House, along with Beatles historian Mark Lewison, and a cassette. Oh, that's a good you couldn't advertise in the village. Now we see you we were there because the Stowboys, who were organising the Beatles uh, concert, wanted somewhere for them to be fed after the event. So they came to our parents, my parents, uh, Tom and Elaine, to ask them, would you mind cooking for them? Which mum was horrified about because they were a pop group and no, we couldn't possibly do that. But after some persuasion from my sister and myself, we thought it might be a good idea. So they got to cook the meal. We got to go to the show. So the menu you put on for them? Uh, I think it was roast chicken, all the trimmings, apple pie, cream, with custard. 
<laughs> yeah, so it was the whole caboodle. There was even wine on the table. Do you remember what, anything, conversation that you had? I can't remember much conversation because I was so dumbstruck to be sitting next to Paul McCartney. He was my favourite at the time. Speaking of Peter Jackson. Tell me about this tape recording that your, your dad made. Dad uh, decided that he would hide the microphone in a vase of flowers, which was actually on the, on the cupboard behind where George was sitting. I'm just amazed that he had the forethought of doing that. So that conversation was recorded, and you said it's been released? I don't think or? the whole tape has been released. There is a lot of knife and fork sounds in there. But you can hear John Lennon talking to the headmaster. You can tell John is a confident talker. They're talking a bit about their past performing history in Hamburg and things like that, aren't they? Yes. John and Paul were doing most of the talking. Oh, well, we used to play in Hamburg and we used to do this and we used to do okay. that. Kind of interesting. But it was a different recorder, right? Not the Butoba. It was something else. It, was, it may okay. well have been one of those Grundigs. Yeah. <laughs> so, so wherever John the, Lennon was, he's getting recorded nefariously without knowing. <laughs> <laughs> In the flower pot. Do you object to that tape, John? We know you are not a fan of the Let It Be flower pot tape. Well, that's why I questioned who these people were. I mean, well, I'm just going to record the conversation and... We're going to steer the conversation to banking, international banking. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they did spend some time in in Hamburg, so they could be gun runners. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so uh, we move on from some other guy into Misery, which Paul reminds us was a tune which they wrote for a fella named Mr. Kenny Lynch. A fellow that we know a lot about. He was on the band on the run cover. A very good singer and entertainer. And once again, John goes funny. He does his spastic routine here. It's never a dull moment with John, is it? <laughs> There's nobody there with jewellery to rattle, I'm guessing. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know I, if these boys had enough money to both get them there and record on a $3,000 tape recorder. I'll bet some of them had some jewellery. <laughs> Here is where you can hear girls screaming in the back of the room. Yeah, it's it's weird, though, isn't it? It, it, it comes in partway through the song and... Uh, uh, it's it's just it it's it's a weird opening. Maybe Brian paid some girls to scream. <laughs> I kind of think that Paul went into the the doe eyes, the as we have described it, the panty dropping routine, and they just couldn't help themselves at this point.
the again the album had been out already. It's and, true. Uh, they probably had a little listening party with <laughs> their friends, <laughs> and so girls were allowed to attend this uh, event. I think they mentioned that some of them were allowed in by the efficiency of the school, yeah. but I think they also managed to sneak in some other girls. Otherwise, they had some castrata attending those schools. <laughs> That's a pretty high screaming. <laughs> yeah, no, it, it has to be girls <laughs> d- doing that. But, I mean, it's it's a slight shock at this point to hear them. It's like, oh, yeah, <laughs> this is what you normally get. You're right, right. Could just be boys that haven't gone through the changing. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, that uh, this was this middle school kids or high school? No, these these are high school kids at this oh, point. Okay. Oh, okay, yeah, they've gone through puberty at this point. <laughs> Obviously, there's a reason why they want girls there. This is really where we start to get into the interaction that John talked about, the back and forth between the audience and the Beatles there on the stage. You know, the first part. They've been a little bit reserved, but here they're starting to really go back and forth on the chat. Yeah, they're starting to get a little relaxed now. They were into the fourth song. After they finish the song, John once again gets a little bit funny. He introduces, I just don't understand, but he introduces it as a waltz. Well, it is a waltz. I mean, it's three, four times. That would be a crowd pleaser, right? (laughs) The audience seems to know it, which is why I think that there may have been some of their fans from the cavern here at this show. And this was a cover, so possibly some of these songs, uh, they obviously were out already. The original version, the, yeah. The original versions. Yeah, so the, maybe, the original version yeah. was Anne Margaret, wasn't it? Uh, yeah. favorites right john i like this song a lot in listening to it i felt like um ringo it's the sloppiest i've ever heard him play really because he's following the guitar line and so his beats this is towards the end of the song as it's building up and it gets kind of messy you know they they record it later on in august for the bbc and it's very much smoothed out and so it works. This is a live version. Didn't he also mention that they hadn't played it in a while? Yeah, I believe so. Uh, I'm wondering if they've not played it with Ringo before this time. You know? Possibly. It's possible. This was the first time that they really mentioned that this is a longer set than they've played in, in a while. You know, John says, we'd like to do one we haven't done for a bit because we don't usually play this long. Right. This is the first time they realize, oh, we are playing for an hour. We have to pull out some of our other songs other than what we normally do in a set. 
Yeah, and they don't typically rehearse. That could be the problem too with Ringo's. Uh, he was rehearsing on stage. Yeah, uh, I, <laughs> yeah. I would almost guarantee that's probably it. He's not that familiar with it. They didn't play it often, or maybe hadn't at all. Yeah, it's, it's entirely possible. There's a lot of that in here. I mean, George's playing is great, but it's also ever so slightly sloppy in places. So, okay, that is followed by Shot of Rhythm and Blues, which is one that they all know very well. Right. And there was a problem with the tape, right, at this point? There, there's, there's like a, a little dropout. There's drop a very out. brief dropout. No. I mean, not, not enough to really give you any issues with it, but yeah, no. there is a very brief dropout. He was changing his batteries. <laughs> <laughs> There's nothing that AI couldn't handle. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Those D cells are a swine to change. <laughs> <laughs> well, obviously he didn't do it because the tape continues slowing down. They had to speed correct more as the tape went on. <laughs> but even at the wrong speed, it's so great. You know, the performance is just so yeah. hot. Oh, definitely. We're about 20 minutes, so we're about a third of the way through the show. And we get to hear... Ringo. Ringo Star Time. So apparently there was a lot of fans there, right? There was a big ch- cheering. There's a for- big cheer for Ringo, <laughs> yeah. Everybody loves Ringo. A really nice version of Boys. It goes on for a while. It's not like the record and it's not like the BBC versions where they fade out at the end, as it were. No, they seem to get into a vibe, don't they? Here they just play through. They're enjoying themselves with it. Yeah. And John refers to him as Bingo. <laughs> is that before Eric Morecambe calls him that? It is. And then, of course, there's that Gilligan's Island with the mosquitoes. Bingo, Bingo, oh, Bongo, right. and Irving. <laughs> of course, when Paul's doing his introduction, he refers to him for um, our drummer to sing. <laughs> like, he had to pause. He couldn't really remember his name. <laughs> John tends to forget lyrics, too. (laughs) (laughs) This may well be the best response they've gotten so far, although that's about to change. The boys definitely enjoy Ringo singing something. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yeah, bingo. They move on, and the boys are starting to yell out their requests. One of them asks for There's a Place. Oh, well, there you go. They they do have the album. Yeah. Yeah. 
and we get the first time that someone shouts out for how do you do it, which just amuses me so much <laughs> because there's no way they could have known the Beatles had recorded how do you do it before, Jerry. I'm sure they're just trying to take the mickey out of them. It's like, uh, okay. do a Jerry song. Come on. Yeah, you're probably right about that, Ed. Because they didn't release it as a single unless... Did they play it at all live? No. At Cavern? I don't think so. I think Paul says they might have done it once or twice just to get the arrangement through before they went and recorded it. But it certainly didn't last for any length of time. Okay. That may be why John said that they couldn't have gone back to Liverpool having put that out as a single. Maybe they played it. It didn't go over very well. Ringo gets a second number. Two consecutive numbers at... Quite possibly the only time in the Beatles that we really get Ringo star time. <laughs> back to back, Ringo. Yeah. He introduces himself like, I'd like to do another one now, make you suffer. <laughs> so what it is is Matchbox. I find this interesting because we'd always kind of thought that Matchbox was a John song until they just gave it to Ringo. So this is April. It's July when John does Matchbox on the BBC. Had they planned to give this to Ringo or was it... We don't have George singing, so we got to have Ringo singing something else. Uh, Ringo, what do you know? <laughs> that can be possibly what happened. Give Paul and John a break, you know? Yeah, because George isn't going to relieve them. That's true. It's a little bit rockier, although it is fairly close to the John Lennon BBC version in, in arrangement. Is. Yeah. Yeah. You know, uh, which is different than the country version that they do when they actually record it for real. With Ringo. With Ringo, yeah. Oh. Shout out to our friend Kent Blazy and the country show we just did. He's going to owe us one when he starts recording with Ringo. <laughs> <laughs> So Matchbox then goes on into John and Paul joking around a little bit, doing their funny goon voices. And the crowd is getting louder at this point. Starting to, yeah. Yeah. And as we mentioned, the single was not out, and here they are performing it for the boys. This would have been the first time they heard this song. Yeah. For me to you. Well, this was the practice on stage, though. Remember? They rehearsed on stage. So what better time to try this out at the school? Well, that's who true. else is going to hear it, right? <laughs> no one's going to hear this 60 years from now. Ever, ever again, no. <laughs> <laughs> well, especially since they played the mouth organ on Love Me Do, but John doesn't do the harmonica bit here. Right. It's more up-tempo, a little bit more rocky, a little rock for you. In my notes, I put happy. 
<laughs> it's an enthusiastic rendition of that song. It's well performed and it's well received. <laughs> One of the boys in there shouts out, I'll buy it. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, they're, they're having fun. They're winning over the audience. <laughs> they started out the show a little bit reserved. And by this point, the boys are very definitely getting into the show. Wasn't the harmonica actually a, an overdub in the studio as opposed to on Love Me Do, it was done while they were recording it live? I believe so, John. Yeah, I think the, the harmonic was overdubbed. Yeah, and I don't think John would have had a harness at this point, so it would have been difficult for him to have done the harmonica and the second guitar at the same time. They hadn't seen Bob Dylan yet, so... No, no. <laughs> they are pleased at the reaction to it. It's like, you like that one, so we'll go ahead and play the B-side now. And so they go into Thank You, Girl. They're plugging the single. Nice little strum of the guitar from George. Again, something which isn't on the record, and they never played again on the BBC. Okay. And we also get a little bit of feedback. This is a place where you might want to look for the AI'd version of it, because it is much more pleasing to the ear not to have this loud squeal of feedback. But it just makes everything so realistic. I don't, I don't <laughs> mind feedback. <laughs> we get more the interaction between Paul and the crowd. Paul introduces a, a Chuck Berry number, and someone in the crowd wants to hear a taste of honey. Paul's a front man, right? Typically. Paul seems to be the one doing most of the introductions. Yeah, he, yeah, did, he does all the stage announcements, basically, and John's the comedian. John comes on and does funny business. Yeah. yeah. And George has <laughs> got a bad throat. He's quiet on the afternoon. We, we can't do Taste of Honey yet. They will do Taste of Honey, but, but not yet. Now John gets to do the introduction. They're going into Memphis. You know, everybody covered Memphis right around this time. True. How many versions of Memphis have we already mentioned in Toppermost? Uh, four at least. At least. Clearly, John yeah. loves that song. And my favorite bit, because nobody can get the lyrics right, my uncle took the message and he wrote it on the wall. <laughs> John never gets it right. It never does. John goes and sings out small coat every time. It's like, small coat? Well, I guess that's how John heard it. And there was no Yoko at the end on this one, was there? <laughs> like he did with Chuck Berry on uh, Mike Douglas. <laughs> and then there was another one which we just did where they changed the lyrics to the phone boy took the message and he wrote it on the wall. <laughs> and it's like, 
where did you get that word from? It's all in the syllables, you know. You can make up anything as long as it's right. in the pattern of it. I, for well, years, thought it was small tooth. <laughs> small, yeah, that's what I thought. Well, nowadays it'd be Bluetooth. Uh, <laughs> it reminds me of the days when we used to try and learn songs from playing a record and take the needle back to what was that word that they said there? Yeah, or change the speed. Yes. Right. <laughs> now, I will admit, you know, Chuck does not sing it very distinctly. In, he sings it much more distinctly in the live versions of the song. From the record, I can see how you, particularly if you're not speaking in the same accent, you wouldn't be able to ever get the words my uncle from what he sings. That's common because you're just taking it off a record. So we move on to Memphis. Again, back to the audience. More shouts for Taste of Honey. They really wanted to hear that song, did they not? Well, but they also have shouts for Chains and Do You Want to Know a Secret? It's like, guys, we've already told you, George can't sing. When they do Taste of Honey, is it, I've heard the record so long that I hear him and he's not there? Because to me, on Taste of Honey, he's there. I think he may be singing a little bit. I think he's also singing a little bit on Twist and Shout, which is coming up. I have that too, that he, more George. Maybe he just, nothing that stretched him at all. It was like, this is in my comfortable range. I can handle this. Right. Because then again, we're jumping ahead. When they do Anna, he goes back to not singing. The crowd is actually mostly quiet, and this is one of the best sounding songs on the tape in terms of fidelity. The Taste of Honey, yeah. So, all right, we come out of that uh, to yet more requests, Twist and Shout, and There's a Place. And that's when John says, uh, what he, we have a, a request for Twist and Shout, which happens to be the next song. Then you do hear a little bit of George talking in there, saying something about he can't sing. <laughs> That he's got no voice. Which, that's kind of an excuse, right? Because he's going to attempt to sing the backups on this, right? I guess. <laughs> The 
interesting thing about Twist and Shout here is, you know, we've always heard it as either an opening song or a closing song. Here it's in the oh, middle of the yeah. set. Yeah. 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 Did they take a break? No. They no. played straight through for an they, hour. Yeah, they right? played straight through. It's not quite as rocky as the, the album version. It's a little bit more bluesy. I think they had said somewhere where they they didn't really play an hour, you know, with those uh, the tours that they did right. at that time. So maybe they just they put together this ch- this list, this song list pretty quick. Just Well clearly they're you know. taking requests. Yeah. So I mean, you know, I don't think they actually wrote out a song list. They kind of said, here's the songs we can play without George. No, I think and they then, did. It's uh, you can find it behind uh, Paul's bass, the song list. <laughs> <right>? <laughs> Somewhere. He hadn't, he hadn't taken that to the neck just yet. Not yet. <laughs> what if George had his wages cut? for that time <laughs> <laughs> they were already taking a little bit of a discount playing at these boys school i don't know maybe if we go and take the knives and forks off the dinner <laughs> flower pot conversation we, we yeah. hear john and paul we're not giving george the full right to be able to have a tape for the band room <laughs> john's like we're not doing this again <laughs> Given the fact that they are taking these requests, I think they really didn't plan out a set list for this show. Okay. What this sounds like to me is they did a couple of TV versions of Twist and Shout where they didn't do quite as raucous. I mean, granted, we don't really hear John's lead, so we can't say for certain, but it seems like they were going for a a slightly bluesier feel. Again, okay, this is the middle of the set. We don't want to blow our wad just yet. Was this the full length version of the song, or did they cut it like they did later in concerts? It's full. Yeah, I think it's full. Is it? Okay. Well, they didn't want to lose another singer because they've already lost George being able to do lead vocal as well. Yeah. Maybe if they had planned this to be two half-hour sets, so maybe Twist and Shout was intended to end the set. That's a possibility as well because Paul announces, uh, sorry, we we thought we'd be doing two half-hour spots. And once again, Paul forgets the name of one of his band members. He refers to John as Tom. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, Tom Tom's out of request. Good old Tom yeah, Lennon. Tom Lennon. Tom Hunyadi, right, Marv? Yes, Tom Hunyadi. Yes. A request for Anna, and Paul calls it out, and somebody in the audience is shouting for George. Right. A male member or a female member? (laughs) We can't tell, but somebody is shouting. I would say male from what I can kind of hear. A really nice, soulful version of Anna. But there's no backing vocals on this song. Yeah, not really. Well, none that's audible, at least on the Yeah, but I mean, we can usually hear at least Uh, something if it's going on. But if George wasn't going to sing, then it would have been stupid for Paul to be, because all their parts were harmonized. Yeah. 
And you do hear the boys singing along some in the chorus. Yeah, definitely getting into it. We move on to probably what is the highlight of the show for me. We get a couple of just really barn burner versions of songs. Paul says that we've had a request for Please Please Me. So thank you. Before we do it, we'd like to thank you for something. It's obviously a joke. We don't hear what Paula says, but John lets out a little belly laugh. Yeah. Yeah. And they go into Please Please Me. Right. I was pleased pleased with this. <laughs> this may be one of the best live versions of the song that we have. Yeah, it has a great intro. With- Great intro with, with George playing that. Yeah, he played the harmonica part. It's, it's really good. The part of the thing that sells it for me is the fact that the audience sings along. You know, this was their hit. What I felt like listening to is like, who said this didn't get to number one? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I've said it, but but, but I, I, right. But but the fact is that audience knows that song and they all sing along with it. is the one that gets the lyrics wrong john is almost completely drowned out by the boys singing along right but it's so good hot 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 and then paul is clearly up there thinking i'm not gonna let john get away with this john's not gonna overtake me and (laughs) they come out to more requests again someone wants to hear do you want to know a secret No, George is not singing tonight. (laughs) Paul knows what he's going to do. We'd like to carry on with a tune recorded a long time ago by a fella named Chan Romero, if you've heard of him. The audience has no idea who Chan Romero is. Right. There's like one guy in the audience who like shouts out for Chan Romero. (laughs) And so Paul's like, well, don't worry. It's called the Hippie Hippie Shake, which, oh boy, is Paul's. Long tall Sally voice in oh, full yeah. throat here.
Or like you said, not to be outdone by John. <laughs> Those two songs together, that is quite possibly my favorite part of this whole performance. It's hot. So they come out of Hippie Hippie Shake. <laughs> There's a bunch of songs that they do in this era that they're kind of like the hidden LP, you know, the the LP that could have been with all those songs like Hippie Hippie Shake and Talking About You and Some Other Guy, Monkey Business. Oh, that would have been a great early Beatle album. Right. Really great. They've got four years. I would love to see them clean up this tape and this be the bonus disc on Please Please Be when we get it. That's a nice thought. You know, we've got enough of the bass vocal that if they had to AI the vocal, I would take that. Yeah, they wouldn't take much, I would think. All you really need for the fake vocals to sound convincing is you need the cadence of the original performance, which we've got here. Matter of fact, John, you can go ahead and start with the bass (laughs) dubs right now, right? (laughs) <laughs> no one will ever know <laughs> talking about you yeah <laughs> so again more requests the boys are are out there shouting for uh long tall sally there's a place ask me why and p.s i love you recorded Long Tall Sally yet. Another reason why I think they had to have had some fans from Liverpool in this audience. Quite possible. So out of those selections, Paul says, okay, we'll have a bash at Ask Me Why. (laughs) And once again, you get a little wiseacre in the audience saying, make George sing! (laughs) I love it. talking i had this thing flash my head of having gone seeing a bunch of bands that were good but they weren't 
really, really famous. The idea that you could go, have you ever heard Paul McCartney sing Long Tall Sally? Wow. And to go see that show, and there's Paul singing that song. And then you get it for the final number. It's a shame we don't have it on the tape, but I think we can be pretty certain that that was the final number. Yeah, they closed with it a lot. Especially since you know people have been shouting out for it. And again, Paul's not going to let John get away with stealing the show. I'm going to close it. Right. Not to be outdone again. <laughs> right. A nice little quasi-acoustic version of Ask Me Why. A little bit more of the girls screaming. For sure, Paul is doing the doe eyes thing here. Yeah. No doubt. It gets very respectful applause, but not you know screaming. It, there were screams during the song. The crowd wants to hear more of Ringo. They're, they're shouting for Ringo. More Ringo. It's not enough. They couldn't give him more. What else could they do? That's a good question. Unless it's not recorded. We don't know for certain that it was Sweet Little 16 and Long Tall Sally, but okay. that seems entirely likely that those were the encores. Yeah. Paul has clearly run out of song ideas, and no, we're not going to give Ringo another vocal. <laughs> so what so did they do? <laughs> they get a shout-out for Sar standing there again, even though they played it to open the show, but Paul's not quite ready to get there. Paul says, well... A slow tune recorded by Peggy Leg. Peggy, Peggy Leg. <laughs> you know, he's trying to do a John there. Yeah. Yeah. From the show The Music Man, and it's called Till There Was You. Yeah, another one where the crowd just quiets down and lets yeah. him do his thing. Time for popcorn at that point. <laughs> Restroom break. Restroom break. <laughs> oh, come on. <laughs> well, I saw that uh, in 89 when Paul did uh, Ebony and Ivory. <laughs> Restroom break. <laughs> Dear me. Poor Ebony and Ivory. I get no respect. And so Till There Was You ends and the wiseacre in the audience comes back up again and shouts, how do you do it? Twice. He's looking for a fight. <laughs> now, is, is that John who just does that? How do you do what you... And then he just cuts it off. Or is it somebody in the audience? Yeah. I can't tell. I think it's John. That's the sort of thing that he would have done. John's sense of humor. Yeah. That's my thought. And then he makes a comment. Well, well, they don't do any of our songs, so we're not going to do any of theirs. 
Well, there you go. It could have very well been John. So that goes into money. As mentioned, it was accidentally taped over. We get, we get about <laughs> 30 to 45 seconds of it. Yeah, sadly enough, it drops. Mm, yeah. Although we had to lose a song, I don't quite mind losing money because we know how <laughs> money would have sounded. You know, we've got so many different versions of John singing money. Yeah, they were rocking on it, though. And money is the root of all evil. Surfing Bird by the Trashman is what got <laughs> recorded over John Lennon's performance of money. <laughs> So was it a uh, record? Probably off the radio, I would guess. Somebody hit record at the wrong point in time, and we're fortunate in that it was only one song that got wiped out, at that not even entirely. It it was wiped out by a really great song from the rock and roll catalog. (laughs) So we're we're moving on toward the end of the show. Now we start guessing. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Paul says, they're just going to record over this anyway, so, you know. (laughs) It's Paul saying that even though we start off with it, and we're stuck for numbers, so here's a good excuse. And they do it again. You saw her standing there, and as mentioned at the top of the show, the tape actually ended just after the solo. being distributed either whoever managed to obtain this tape or the bootleggers have attached the end of the version from the very beginning and you can tell because the boys are all singing along and then all of a sudden it stops okay and so after the solo it's it's just paul singing so they just spliced it so i mean that's the end of this tape april the 4th that was quite a tremendous day for the beatles really was considering they were recording earlier from 11 to about 1.30 or 2 o'clock in the afternoon, they were at the BBC and they did a side-by-side. Yeah, and then they drove? At least an hour to two hours. I think they arrived in two black well, Ford Zephyrs. It, it, well, it, that's um, the extraordinary thing, yeah. is them and their gear and the crew and everything arrived in two saloon cars. I was expecting a big rig, a bus or something. 
Nope, two, two Ford Zodiacs turned up and out of it came everything, including their stage suits. And we helped them into the Roxburgh Hall and so on. And it was a bit of a, a bit of a letdown. I was expecting something a bit more dramatic, but yeah. that's what they did. And then they have to set up. Well, has set up. They're busy touring the grounds. And for all the money that we talk about that these boys had, while Mal was setting up, they took them around to the dormitories and some of the other things. And John's comment was, what a dump. <laughs> yeah, and then they had dinner with the headmaster. They have these columns outside of the auditorium that they played in, and John's comment there was, they look like they're made out of roast beef. They have this particular style of faux marble columns, right, and, right. and it ends up this very red color. So, <laughs> But I'm sure everybody laughed. Then we brought them into the house, which is pretty impressive. But John Lennon's immediate comment was, my God, he said, those columns look like they're made out of corned beef, which I guess they do now, I think. Well, I now cannot think of them as being anything anything other than that. Anything else. Scaglioni is an old marble technique that was used very much in Georgian times to give the impression of being marble, because the reality is, if these had been solid marble, the mind boggles, even the Dukes of Buckingham probably wouldn't have run to that. This way, you can make them out of plaster and then put a thin coat of what looks like marble, Scaglioni, on the top of it. And it was quite a well-known technique at the time. So that's what the columns are. And when the Beatles saw them... (laughs) Yeah, they said, they look like corned beef, (laughs) which, given they're about the colour of corned beef, yeah, I suppose they do a bit, really, yes. Um, where, where did they pose? There's a great photograph of them lined up with a bunch of you sitting at their feet. Yeah, that, the alcoves now have got reproduction statues of antiquities in it, but in the day, all of the alcoves around the, this room were empty, so one was chosen, and there's a bench underneath the alcove, so some people stood on the bench, the Beatles stood in the alcove, and the photographs were taken. Is that Cleopatra in there now? With her ass. She looks a bit Cleopatra-y, doesn't she? Yes, yes. There's a very good story of um, the Beatles going down into the study bedrooms of a house called Temple. This is in a part of the school called the Colonnades. So these are the old wine cellars. And the rooms in those days were were pretty grotty. And uh, apparently uh, John turned round to Paul and said... um, I thought we lived in dumps, uh, but this is just horrible. <laughs> so the, the rooms at Stowe have upgraded a bit that was since my, 1963. My study was in the colonnade, and I can absolutely attest that they were horrible. I, I, I think picture. I've got a picture of the Beatles in your study. Yes. Uh, here they are. They've got your squash racket and your hockey stick. <laughs> this is stick. your room. Ringo's playing with squash rackets and Paul's yeah. leaning over I, I mean, a kind of tea set. It looks like they might be drinking something. Tea, mm. I think. It's, something it's, innocent. <laughs> out of bottles. It's yeah. nice. Yeah. Yes, but <laughs> they did order 24 bottles of Coke, which the boys thought oh. was the most extravagant thing that they had ever heard of. Yes. Uh, that was their rider. 24 bottles of Coke. Do you know one of the things that's really intriguing about the whole encounter of the Beatles and Stowe School is when you see these young men sitting in that study, there's a sort of snapshot of England and how it's changing because they're, you know, essentially working-class boys from Liverpool. The collision of two worlds. The epiphany moment is is when they get up on stage. Oh, that, yes. And one, two, three, four. Next week, we'll go over the interview. (laughs) 
<laughs> well, or the we, conversation, considering, right? Considering we don't have the whole tape, and yeah. the majority of it is knives and forks clinking against plates, and boy, could the Beatles eat! <laughs> you can just hear they're like speeding through this meal. Although, I mean, maybe they hadn't had anything to eat since the morning. So they were at the BBC. They they probably had something to eat before they went down and recorded at the BBC. They drove and then and they were on stage. Well, if they were musicians, they would be chowing down. Late but, night yeah. snack. <laughs> yeah, because Andy's wasn't open. It's still open 24 hours. <laughs> Whenever in Houston. <laughs> There's another story about the evening that uh, apparently while they were relaxing after dinner, Ringo asked one of the uh, girls to walk with him down the garden path. He was just being a little bit silly, but the story has apparently turned into he, he was trying to make a move on her. And, and she was interviewed on the BBC when they were talking about the availability of that tape, you know, whatever was available. And she, no, no, he wasn't actually trying to make a move on me. <laughs> so they say. <laughs> and the girl was underage. Yeah. Ringo knew better than to, to do that. Yeah. yeah, I thought you were yeah. going to say he went off with her. And she has a tape. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think recorders were quite that small just yet. Peace and love, love. (laughs) Oh, but this is an amazing, amazing recording. It really is. It's just, I find it just pretty crazy that, you know, we 60 years it's been put away (laughs) until now. And what else is there that well, I mean, hasn't been discovered? <laughs> that's the thing. We And we've talked about this several times. I mean, we got another tape from that same week when they went and received their gold records at Parlophone. Yeah. You know, that was that same week we, we got the, the Please Please Me and Ask Me Why recording from. Right, right. And then we got that last year, right? End of last year, yeah. I think. yeah. That is professional quality, but it's like, wow. Well, grandkids, great-grandkids, look up <laughs> what's in those old drawers and boxes there in storage. You know, telling what you're fine. Well, okay, so George couldn't sing. What would George have sung if he could have been singing? Uh, do you want to know a secret is the obvious choice? Yeah, that would be one. Chains would have been one. Yeah, yeah. for sure, Chains. What about Hey Good Looking, which was one of George's feature songs? And, and it's a shame that he wasn't able to sing that. That is one of the songs that we don't have. Yeah, I was going to say, you know, we, we don't have that one. I mean, and he, he sang it given the opportunity throughout early 63. Well, we yeah. know it's going to be on the box set in 2026. George with Hey Good Looking. <laughs> yeah. Well... It would be nice if that still existed. Some of the other songs they might have done, which we didn't get to hear. If You Gotta Make a Fool of Somebody, that was one of their big songs right around that point in time. Yeah. Well, an interesting one would be, because of George's voice being like that, do you think that some of the numbers that John and Paul did might have altered so that there were more songs with backing vocals or prominent backing vocals because then George could have helped to fill out the backing vocals more. It certainly could have been. You remember, Martin, we were talking about that there was 
a series of shows in March of 63 where they had to perform as the Threedles. Yeah. Because John wasn't able to perform. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's also kind of interesting that they had enough versatility to be able to do that. I mean, this is John that was sick, not George. Nothing against George, and but they could get away with not having George as a vocalist for an evening. No. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think that some of these versions are as good, if not better, than the versions on Please Please Me? With the exception that we don't have a high-fidelity copy, but from what we've got, from the energy and from the playing, maybe they had, they'd had a chance to rehearse some of the material off of Please Please Me, and the arrangements are such that they were able to go into it really well. They were really rocking. They were really hot, uh, and they were, you know, like, we had said they had been played on BBC already. They were just coming off a uh, tour. Uh, so I, I think they really they really did a good job on all of these, on this the whole set list for the show, even without George being able to help them with the vocals. Yeah, at no point did I think George not being there really hurt this, because it didn't. He wasn't there to do some of his featured vocals, but he certainly, the band played really well and the versions worked so on this one george was the quiet one yeah the only one that i'd say is possibly in some ways better on the album would be twist and shout because john was able to give his all on that version on the album as opposed to on this performance there's a slight bit of restraint in his voice he's not going for it as much because of the fact that it's in the middle of the set right more controlled yeah yeah. Yeah, quite quite possibly. Yeah, yes. he didn't put as much energy into it. Yeah. So you're saying that you think these versions of the rest of the songs are as good, if not better, than what's on the Please Please Me album? I think so. Yeah, I really like these versions on here. To use a 60s-ism, they are really cooking. <laughs> cooking in the kitchen of love. <laughs> there you oh, go. Boy. I had to, sorry. <laughs> Another song that George might have done, Three Cool Cats, thinking about it. That would have been I, I would have liked to have had a, a live version of that, which we don't. Or Youngblood. Shake of Araby. Oh, yeah. How long yeah. did those stay in their regular set? When they got to do their own show, they were still there pretty much by this point in time. Through February or March, they have done each of those songs at least once. Okay. I know if George was able to sing, they would have done uh, Roll Over Beethoven. Well, it was recorded in 63. For the album, right? Weren't they doing it in Hamburg? Yeah, so there you go. Yeah. My question about this period in time is, is we were just moving off from George being an equal vocalist with John Paul. Now, of course, George couldn't sing here, but it still seems that he was falling as they were going on reducing the set down to a half hour. George as a vocalist seemed to have been dropping further and further off. Yeah. Yeah, and he lost his funny. You know, a lot of the songs he did with the Beatles, Three Cool Cats and Sheik of Araby and things like that, he did funny songs quite often. And as they shortened that set, the presentation was of a more serious rock and roller. They should have pulled out You Know What to Do. <laughs> a little early for that, I guess. All right. Thank you for listening. This, this has been an interesting conversation on the Stowe School tape. As I said, if you can pick up the Japanese bootleg, do so. Otherwise, you're better off 
just downloading it from the internet because, well, that's all they really did for the fab version of this tape. And if you can uh, make a better mix than the others, please send us a copy. Please. (laughs) Well, I mean, people were already starting (laughs) to fix it up. Well, there you go. (laughs) We're only a couple weeks in and we've already gotten a speed corrected version. It does help. I'm going to run it through my... um my boss uh, GTX uh, face shifter. See what happens. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So we will be back next week with a new show. And who knows who'll be here? Flip of the coin. Take care, everyone. Be safe. Bye. Subscribe to When They Was Fab on iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher, or wherever finer podcasts are found. Please join our Facebook group, and we could be reached at When They Was Fab and on Gmail. The opening theme was written, produced, and recorded by Jay Young Kim, Beaster Famine Studios, San Francisco, California. Please, please, me. example of the sort of stuff that took the Beatles right up to the top. Now, I know you want some pictures and I know you want a few odds and ends, so um, all right, boys, if we have a few pictures on cameras with films. Bless you. I tell you one thing, there's sickness going on and there's some good people doing work in hospitals, but they got no bread to do it on. Not only are they working in a miserable condition with sick people, but the scraping the barrel for funds to keep going.
turned up nice again.